Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion has deviated from the Bible and its words correctly divided. This deviation has had a devastating effect on society. This podcast will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their Savior. Now for our host, Bill Petrie. I am Bill Petrie, the host of Differing Things. I have some exciting news to share with you. In the next few weeks, Differing Things will be launching our social media presence with Instagram. Through Instagram, we will keep you informed about what we are doing and hopefully pique your interest in upcoming Differing Things episodes. Keep your eyes open. Instagram is coming soon. Next to Jesus Christ himself, the Apostle Paul is probably the most eloquent and persuasive teacher in the Bible. Paul is so significant a figure in the New Testament that God called him to be the founder of a brand new dispensation or administration of grace. For any Bible study, To be true and accurate, it must recognize Paul's authority and message as being something distinct and separate from what existed before him. There is no question that Paul was tasked with the growth and establishment of the Ecclesia, the body of Christ, and in the revealing, interpretation, and application of God's grace administration in Christ, which is in effect today. His epistles make up almost one-fourth of the New Testament as far as volume of words, putting Paul just behind Luke in the percentage of the New Testament written by a single individual. And if one adds the chapters of Acts, in particular Acts chapters 13 through 28, that are almost entirely devoted to Paul, Paul figures in almost one-third of the New Testament. Paul wrote almost half the entire New Testament as far as the number of books in the New Testament goes, and over half if he is the author of the book of Hebrews. Exploring Paul's background will help us understand him better and to interpret his words more accurately. So, who was this man, Paul? Paul himself provides a rough outline of his own background, but in his epistles, this material is scattered. The basic historical details are conveniently grouped in the speeches that Paul gave, as reported by Luke, to a hostile crowd of Jews on the steps of the temple in Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 21, and to King Agrippa II and the Roman procurator Festus in Acts chapter 26, verses 2 through 23. 
Saul, Paul's name before his conversion, was a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, according to Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. It is a region in the extreme southeastern part of Asia Minor. In Paul's day, the city was the capital of the Roman province Syria Cilicia, according to Galatians 1 and verse 21. It was prosperous and privileged. It was exempt from Roman taxation. It was cultured, being famous for its schools. Not only was Paul born in Tarsus, but he was also a citizen of this no ordinary city, according to Acts chapter 21 and verse 39. More important, however, was the fact that Paul was a citizen of Rome. The Romans did not confer citizenship on just anyone. Only a small percentage of people who lived within the Roman Empire possessed this privilege. Paul's Roman citizenship was inherited from his family. Paul claims, I was born a citizen in Acts 22:28. Perhaps because of some deed or service performed by his father or grandfather for the Romans. However achieved, Paul's Roman citizenship was an important and providential qualification for his role as a missionary to the Roman Empire. It enabled him to escape detainment when his preaching brought disfavor, such as in Acts chapter 16, verses 37 through 39. It allowed him to avoid punishment in Acts chapter 22, and it allowed him to plead his case before the emperor's court in Rome, according to Acts chapter 25, verses 10 through 12. His statement in Romans 22, 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but raised in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, educated according to the exactness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as each of you are this day, tells us that prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus, not only was Paul by birth a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was by conviction a serious and zealous follower of Judaism, a member of its strictest sect, the Pharisees. Acts 26 verses 4 and 5 state, Truly then, all the Jews know my way of life, from youth, which from the beginning had been in my nation in Jerusalem, who before knew me from the first, if they will testify that according to the most exact sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. But Paul's encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, and Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 11, and Acts chapter 26, 
verses 12 through 15, turned him from being the number one persecutor of Jewish kingdom believers into not only a follower, but a preacher and apostle of Jesus Christ. Fundamental to Paul's ministry was his consciousness of being an apostle. Like the other apostles, he had seen the Lord, and the Lord himself, not any human being, had called Paul to his apostleship. He tells us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, from Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor by human agency, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Because Paul was an apostle, by God's selection from the celestials, he could claim an authority beyond that of Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the twelve. Those whom some of Paul's opponents had labeled super apostles in 2 Corinthians 11.5. Paul writes from the consciousness of this apostolic authority in every one of his letters. Paul thus frequently distinguishes between his teaching and the teaching of the Lord and the twelve apostles. And Paul makes it clear that he was inspired through direct revelation from a risen, glorified Savior seated at the right of the Father. He tells us in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Now I make known to you, brothers, as to the evangel, which was announced by me, that it is not of human origin. For I did not receive it and learn it from a human source, but through an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Paul's apostolic office enables him to interpret with sovereign freedom the Old Testament scriptures and to make demands on his people that he considered being as binding as anything in Scripture. There are five major teachings of Paul, and we read from his background in the testimony of the Word of God that Paul became a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, a dedicated missionary, and a respected leader in the early church. Here are the five major doctrines he taught and expounded. First, justification by faith. According to Paul, God ushered in a new era through the death of his son. Under the old covenant, people such as Abraham were justified by believing God, looking forward to the promise of the coming Messiah. Just see passages like Genesis 15.6 and Romans 4.22. But now, Believers are justified or declared righteous before God through faith in Christ. And his atoning death 
on our behalf. Our justification is based on the work of Jesus Christ, accomplished through his blood, according to Romans 5.9, and brought to his people through his resurrection, according to Romans 4.25. But what does it mean to be justified? To be justified means to be declared right with God by virtue of the remission of sins accomplished by Jesus. Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer, and the believer's sins are no longer an issue because Christ was the sin offering and he paid the price for their forgiveness of sin. However, let us not forget that justification is by faith. You are justified only when God the Father, based upon the meritorious work of Jesus Christ, declares you to be so upon the exercise of faith. Faith that is directed solely to the God who justifies the ungodly, according to Romans 4, 5. Again, justification is the judicial act of God whereby he forgives the sinner of all his sins. Past, present, and future and declares him righteous in his eyes and free from guilt and punishment. It is an immediate and instantaneous act of God upon the sinner's belief and trust in the gospel. Second, Jesus Christ is the risen and living Son of God. <clears throat> From the moment that Jesus appeared to Paul at his dramatic conversion, Paul immediately started to proclaim without hesitation that Jesus is the Son of God, according to Acts 9.20. Let us not forget who Paul was. He was a Pharisee, utterly devoted to stamping out the new movement based on Jesus Christ. But Jesus intervened in his life while he was on that Damascus road. Amazingly, the last words we hear coming out of Saul's mouth before his conversion are, Who are you, Lord? in Acts 9.5. And the first words we hear out of his mouth after his conversion are, Jesus is the Son of God in Acts 9.20. Paul's world had just been turned upside down. The Jesus that he thought was dead was not dead. And not only that, he was the living Lord of the universe. Instantly, Paul's whole worldview collapsed and was rebuilt 
with great, unshakable, and solid pillars of truth about Jesus. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, surely wants us to see how the doctrine that Jesus is the Son of God is foundational to being a Christian and foundational to the rest of Paul's life as the greatest missionary who ever lived. Saul encountered Jesus on that Damascus road. And there became those who would make the accusation that Paul made up his own doctrine about Jesus being the Son of God. And God could not be further from the truth. He encountered the risen Christ and the gospel he had taught the early churches during his ministry. He taught that it came by direct revelation from Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 1.12 and 1.16. In short, Paul's was a supernatural gospel. Paul asserts of the gospel, the evangel, that he preached to the Corinthians, what I received, I passed on to you, he states. What Paul is asserting is that his gospel teaching, such as the truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, was given to him by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself while he was at the right of the Father. To Paul, Jesus was the Christ, God's Son the center of the gospel, and the one through whom all things were created. Third, the church is the body of Christ. Paul is the only writer in all scripture who speaks of the church as a body. Paul emphasized this fact in such passages as Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, I'm sorry, verses 12 through 27. We have to understand this idea that the church is the body of Christ means that the church is a separate and distinct entity from the nation of Israel. The two are not the same, and the church is not a spiritual Israel. All believers, upon the moment that they believe and trust that Jesus Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, receive a once-for-all baptism. And nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to seek this baptism because we have already experienced it, and it need not be repeated. 
And it most definitely is not a Jewish ceremonial baptism with water. Jews and Gentiles are joined together to form a new entity through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. And the only qualification for membership is faith in the risen Savior. Everybody, every member of the body of Christ, both living and dead, since Paul's salvation, are members of this universal church called the body of Christ. Christ is the head of this church. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 says, God has put all things things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. As believers and members of the church, the body of Christ, Christ is our head. This means that there is a living connection between us and Jesus Christ through the Spirit. We are united to him as the members of his body. This means that we also share in his death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, according to Ephesians 6, verses 3 through 5. We, too, are seated in the celestial realms, according to Ephesians 2, verse 6. And all things are under our feet. At the same time, Paul reminds Christians that their various gifts were to be used in building up the body of Christ and that they should work together for the common good of the Christian cause until those gifts ceased upon the completion of God's word, the Holy Bible. Four, the power and influence of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. Paul taught that the Holy Spirit was a more effective power for holy living in the Christian's life than the old Jewish law had ever been. The law told people what to do, but it could not provide the will or the power to do it. But God's Spirit could provide the necessary power and motivation. As a loving and wise mother tenderly watches over her child, the Holy Spirit cares for the children of God. We see this in a a number of ways. First, the Holy Spirit indwells Christians. The Bible teaches that all believers in the dispensation of the grace of God, those who are members of the body of Christ, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. The purpose of this indwelling ministry is to control the newly created in being that has been made upon conversion 
according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. We are a new creation. Secondly, the Holy Spirit works by filling believers. We are admonished to be filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 5.18. The word filled means to be controlled. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit and is therefore crucial to successfully living the Christian life. Unlike the indwelling of the Spirit, filling is a repeated experience. With the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit into a relationship that we can never get out of because he is the guarantee that we will get to where God wants us to be. But filling is a repeated experience. This is understood using the present tense, be filled. Just as important, we must observe that filling is a command to be obeyed, not an option. Third, the Holy Spirit sanctifies the believer, according to Romans 15.16 and 2 Thessalonians 2.13. The basic meaning of sanctification is separation, or to be set apart. In John 17, 19, when Jesus spoke of himself as being sanctified, in other words, he is holy and set apart from sin. And so his followers are to be in like manner set apart from sin and for God's use. In the spiritual sense of a believer's life, sanctification means to be set apart by God, for God, away from sin unto a holy life, and to be made more holy through the conforming to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 tells us we are to be conformed to the image of his Son. Next, we see that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in the life of the believer. This fruit is described by the Apostle Paul but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. <clears throat> we see this list in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. The contrast between results and fruit is important. A machine in a factory works and turns out a product but it could never manufacture fruit. Fruit must grow out of life. And in the case of the believer, it is the life of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.25. Believers are to live by the Spirit, which means keeping in step with the Spirit if they are to bear fruit in abundance. This involves the word, prayer, worship, praise, and fellowship with God's people. Next, we see that the Holy Spirit teaches believers. The Holy Spirit will instruct us in all spiritual things as we read 
the word of God. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, Now the spirit which we have received is not the spirit of this world, but that which comes from God, that we might know what he has graciously bestowed on us. Of this we speak, not in language which man's wisdom teaches us, but in that which the Spirit teaches, adapting as we do spiritual words to spiritual. But a soulish man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he get to know because they are spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual evaluates all things, yet he himself is evaluated by no one. For whoever understood the thoughts of the Lord to give him instruction. But as for us, we have the mind of Christ. And next, in the last point, although we could probably name a dozen others, is the second coming of Christ himself. The Apostle Paul taught that Christ will return to earth at the end of this eon, and that believers will share in his glory in the eons to come. The return of Jesus Christ will happen in two distinct phases. The first one, the rapture, is when Christ will return in the air and take with him to the celestials every person, both living and dead, who is trusted as Christ as Savior in this present dispensation of grace. God will then deal with the body of Christ in the celestials. We can read of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. The second phase, the second coming or second advent, which is the return of Jesus with an army of angelic beings to destroy the forces which are arrayed against God and to deliver the Jewish people and restore Israel's kingdom back to her. God will at that time again deal with the nation of Israel on the earth. So the two phases have two distinct purposes. The first purpose is God dealing with the body of Christ in the celestial realm. And the second purpose is God dealing with the nation of Israel on the earth. In the first purpose, when God deals with the body of Christ in the celestial realm, he is showing forth his display of grace. And in the second case, when God begins to deal with the Jewish people, the nation of Israel on the earth again, it will be via law with a rod of iron. The bottom line is this. The doctrines taught and expounded by the Apostle Paul 
are the instructions and commands of God for this present dispensation of grace. Paul may not be here anymore, but he continues to minister to us today through the epistles that he wrote. And only in his epistles are the commands and instructions and information to and about and for the body of Christ. These writings are the only writing and instruction to the body of Christ. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.